Well, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, we're going to be in chapter 3 today. I have a recurring nightmare. Uh, The details are not always the same, but the premise is unfailing. And the premise is basically this. I am in some situation where I am presenting. I'm in, I'm either in a, a large crowd on a stage or there's there's some presentation that I am supposed to do and it is my turn to come to the podium or the front and to begin my presentation and I have no idea what to do. I am totally unprepared for the task at hand and there is nothing quite every everybody probably doesn't experience that and but for those of you who have some kind of a, a role in front of people or you're some kind of public uh, speaking or, or teaching or something, there, there's nothing quite like the feeling of knowing it's time to go and I'm not sure what to do. All right? I am not ready to do this. And that sort of, that tells you something probably about my own psychology and some of the, the heart uh, battles that I, that I face uh, on a regular basis. But there is this recurring dream where I am, it's time to go and I am not ready. I am ill-equipped for the work at hand. And so I end up beginning to sort of improv something just to get something started and hope that words will come. Uh, and usually I wake up pretty early in that process. I, I don't generally uh, see or at least remember an entire presentation that I sort of uh, fumbled my way through. Um, but it, so it focuses on those moments leading up to and the very beginning of, uh, of a presentation where I'm totally unprepared uh, for the task that I have been given. In a far more serious way, uh, there's a man in our text today in Zechariah 3 who finds himself in the very presence of God, charged to work in his temple, and he is totally unequipped for the job. And so the sort of drama of the vision that we read about and, and study today centers around uh, the, the lack of equipment and preparation uh, that this man has for the work in the temple that God has given him to do. And what is God going to do about that? And that's sort of the central drama of our uh, text today. So we've seen in the book of Zechariah uh, that the, the first half or so of the book is taken up with these eight night visions uh, God comes to Zechariah in the night and gives him, it seems, one after the other, a series of eight uh, apocalyptic prophetic visions. He's not sleeping, so it's not a dream, because in, in one of them, or two of them, it actually says that the angel woke him, and then he saw a vision. And so it's not a dream. He is awake, and the, the spirit sort of carries him into this sort of trance-like state and shows him these various vivid images uh, and then an angel in the vision interprets those things for him and helps him understand what he's seeing. And then, of course, Zechariah's job as the prophet is to go and deliver these messages and, and report these images that he's seen uh, to the people of Israel. Uh, I, I talked a little bit last week about how these eight visions uh, are structured in a chiasm, which is where the, there are parallel sections that uh, that culminate in uh, the middle image are actually two images that form the sort of the, the tip of a, a pyramid. And so these images all drive toward this one central point. So visions one and eight, the bookends of these visions, concern uh, horses uh, patrolling the earth. 
uh, on behalf of Yahweh and declaring that the nations are at peace or, or the world is at peace. Visions two and three, and then visions six and seven, the kind of next layer in, uh, both of those sets of visions deal with Yahweh defeating opposition uh, to his his people. Uh, the first, the, the two and three are about really external opposition. So the nations that have been oppressing Israel, and then six and seven are about more like internal struggles that is dealing with sin and injustice in the, the people themselves. But both of those sets of images show God uh, eradicating opposition from his people. And that means that the middle visions, visions four and five, are the, the tip of this pyramid of this chiasm, and therefore the main point uh, that the prophetic images are, are driving home. And they concern uh, a pure priest and a mighty king. And the one we'll look at today is that fourth vision uh, concerning uh, a pure priest. And then we'll look next week in chapter uh, four at, uh, at the vision of this, of this mighty king. And both of those images, I believe, point us forward to Jesus, the Messiah, who would come and perform ultimately both of those roles. He would be a priest for the people of God and the king uh, over them. And so uh, that's where we are in, the, in these visions and in the book. The overarching message of all of these visions and, and maybe the, the book at large is that Yahweh will defeat the enemies of his people and the world will be at peace under the rule of his anointed king and priest. So that's the, the sort of theme of this book and, and of these visions in particular. In today's text, chapter 3, this fourth vision, there's a predicament, a provision, and a promise. I'm going to read uh, just the first three verses for now, and we'll look at this predicament together. What is the, the problem that needs to be addressed? So look at Zechariah chapter 3. Here are verses 1 through 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. So the predicament is shown in these three verses, these first three verses, and there's a couple aspects of it. One part of the predicament is Satan's accusation. We're given this sort of heavenly courtroom scene, and there's the angel of the Lord who seems to kind of stand in for God himself. He, he speaks for Yahweh. He kind of represents Yahweh. So you have this the Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and it's very much as though it is God himself. It is Yahweh himself who is speaking and, and interacting uh, with uh, with Joshua. And uh, now there are some uh, 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 interpreters and scholars who believe that the angel of the Lord, when he appears in the Old Testament, may be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, of the Son of God, before he became a man in the person of Jesus. The eternal Son of God appears from time to time and is maybe dubbed the angel of the Lord. We see the angel of the Lord appear to Joshua at the beginning of his sort of charge to uh, to conquer the land of Canaan for his people and, and in several other places. And so it could be 
that the angel of the Lord is uh, is the Son of God, a pre-incarnate uh, f- uh, appearance of him. Um, we don't want to make too much of that. Uh, he's, it's never explicitly stated that that's the case in any of the places where he shows up uh, in the Old Testament, uh, but it could be that that's the case. At least he is a powerful angel, and he, uh, he represents and speaks for God. And so when, when some human uh, correspondent is speaking with or addressed by the angel of the Lord, it is as though he is engaging with being addressed by uh, God himself. And so the angel of the Lord is there and Joshua is before him, again, in a, a sort of court scene. And there is an accuser there among the midst of Joshua, the high priest, and the angel of the Lord is Satan, whose name means accuser. He is the one who, from the beginning, has been uh, concerned with pointing, uh, pointing out the, the guilt, the shame, the sin, the unworthiness of God's people, that they, he might drag them away from their confidence in him, from their faithfulness to him, from their relationship to him. If he can't hurt God directly, he's going to do everything he can to hurt and corrupt God's people. And that's the work that Satan does. It might remind you, if you've been reading through the, uh, our Bible plan this year, it might remind you of the way that the book of Job begins. There's a, a scene in heaven, and, and, uh, and, and Satan is seen as kind of walking around among the angels, and, and, and Satan and God have a conversation about Job. And what is Satan doing there? He's accusing, right? He's saying, well, of course Job worships you. You've given him everything that he could ever want. Let's start messing with his stuff. And uh, he's going to prove that, uh, that he's not really a godly man at all, right? He's not really a righteous person. Uh, and that's what Satan does. His business is to accuse. He is called uh, the accuser of the brethren uh, in Revelation uh, chapter 12, verse 10. This is his main business. And here he is in this heavenly courtroom to point out that Joshua, the high priest, is wearing dirty clothes. And so... The predicament, the particular predicament that Joshua faces is that that he has been charged with the work of overseeing the temple of God, overseeing the worship of the people of God, and, and representing the people before God's holiness. And he is filthy. He is wearing dirty clothes. And so here's the thing. Satan has a point. In his accusation, in his effort to discredit this servant of God, he has something true to work with. Because in this prophetic image, Joshua is wearing dirty robes. His priestly garments are soiled and filthy. And so that points us to two, I think, realities about Joshua. Number one is that he's ritually unclean. Right? We know that Yahweh has this, this system of worship in the Old Testament and this priestly system where there's, there are these clear prescriptions for cleanness and uncleanness, which is not necessarily uh, uh, physical dirt uh, uh, and washing off of physical dirt, but there's a correspondence there. And so there, the priest who's performing these, these ritual sacrifices and doing the, the work of overseeing the worship of God and representing the people of God had to be clean, 
right? He had to go through these certain uh, rules and, and rhythms uh, to be clean before God so that when he entered the presence of God in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, he would be clean and thereby able to represent the people faithfully and not sort of offend God by bringing this, un- this uncleanness, this filthiness into his presence. And so the fact that Joshua is wearing dirty robes tells us that he's not prepared for the work. He is unclean. He is supposed to perform this this task, this important service for the people of God and for God himself in their worship of him, and he is unclean. God says there, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And that the language for brand there is more like a stick that, that's smoldering or, or, or smoking, right? And so it's as though there's been a stick that's been engulfed in the flames and it's been plucked out of the fire and it still has the soot on it. It still bears the marks of, 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 the, of the fire. And this is an image, I think the fire here is an image of their exile in Babylon. So they were in Babylon as a judgment uh, of God for their sin, and now they've been plucked from that fire, as it were. Right, the people have been uh, are, are being led back into the land of Judah, released from their captivity. And so Joshua, as the high priest, is among those those people who came back into the land of Judah, and so he's been plucked from the fire, but he still bears the marks of the people's wanderings and of their distance from God. Uh, they have not rightly worshipped Yahweh in more than a generation. They've been removed from their place, from their temple, which, of course, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, and so they've been living in, in exile in Babylon and, and separated from him and from all of those, uh, those uh, rhythms and structures that God had put in place for them. So they have not worshipped God in the, the way that they were prescribed to worship him in more than a generation. And so here's Joshua given the work of a high priest, and he is unclean and unprepared for the work of the priesthood. Secondly, I think the filthy rags of Joshua point us to a deeper reality. Namely, Joshua is a sinner. He's not just ritually unclean and not prepared to do the work. He has a deeper stain than what is on his clothes. His ritual uncleanness, his lack of preparedness for the priestly work is symbolized by this this dirt on his robes. And it's more than that. It's dirt on his heart, as it were. And it raises the question, how can a righteous God be served by a sinful priest? How can the Holy One of Israel dwell with an unholy people? Because he's been promising them, right? The the book of Zechariah begins with this promise. I will return, right? Return to me and I will return to you. And then the first couple of visions concerned his purpose and his promise to return and to restore Jerusalem and to bless the people with his presence and, and his covenant faithfulness. But how can this be? Because Joshua, as the representative of the people, is himself a sinner. And of course, we know that all of the people are in that same condition. They're sinners, How can the holy God dwell with an unholy people? And this is the central predicament of this image. And indeed, it's the central predicament of human life entirely. Human beings in our fallenness are sinners. We are broken. 
We have violated the covenant that God made with us. We have rebelled against him. We are sinners. How can it be that God will draw near to sinners, that God will welcome sinners into his family and into fellowship with him? That is the the chief problem that human beings face, whether they acknowledge that or not. Not all people think that that's their big problem, but it is. They're sinners, and how can God welcome them in? Well, I want you to see that the table begins to turn here, even before you leave the the first three verses, because the Lord speaks up and rebukes Satan, the accuser. In fact, Satan doesn't even actually get a word in. Right? It says he is standing there to accuse him. Right? He is there uh, before the angel of the Lord, standing beside Joshua the high priest in order to bring accusations against him, in order to, to point out his dirty robes, right? in order to point out his sin. But before he can speak, Yahweh breaks in and he says, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. That is a strong, emphatic correction, rejection, and rebuttal from God. He pushes Satan away, as it were, and says, I will not listen to what you have to say. And when, it, when, when he points out there, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you, this is so precious. It points out to us that God's choice is the only thing that matters. For Joshua, standing in the presence of God, appointed with the task of temple service, but ritually unclean and sinful in heart, when God has set his covenant love and affections upon you, that will not stand in the way. When you are God's chosen, Satan's accusations, however true, however reasonable, don't carry any weight with God. Brothers and sisters, your accuser has been thrown down. When you hear the familiar voice of guilt and shame reminding you of your failures, urging you to stay hidden in the shadows, not exposing your your failures, your sins, and confessing those, those weaknesses, convincing you that you have no business being in God's family or no possible right to serve him, Recognize that voice for what it is, the voice of Satan. That's the voice of the accuser in your ear, pointing out your sin and your guilt and trying to keep you trapped in shame. Remember Revelation 12, verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Listen, through the work of Christ on our behalf, the accusing voice of the devil has been silenced. He keeps trying. He'll whisper in your ear and in my ear all of those things. You know why? Because God ain't listening. God won't hear Satan when he makes those accusations. And so he's got to try and the best, thing, best shot he's got is to come after us and to make us feel like we can't be with God. We can't serve God. We can't be forgiven because of how gross our life is, because of how bad our sin is, because of how hugely we've messed up. But God isn't listening to that, and neither should you. 
So the predicament is that the priest is wearing dirty clothes. He is ritually unclean. He is sinful in heart. He is not prepared to carry out the task that God has given him. How will a holy God dwell with unholy people? And so the next few verses show us the provision, the provision in verses four through seven. Let me read those verses for you. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. The provision that God makes for this priest with filthy robes is clean garments, right? In, in the image that Zechariah is presented with, the filthy garments that Joshua is wearing are replaced with pure, clean vestments. That is the, the ritual uh, garb that the priest was, was to wear. He is given new clothes, now, when it says uh, those standing before him, that's probably a reference to other angels in uh, this heavenly courtroom. And so there's, again, uh, more people than just the angel of the Lord and Joshua and uh, and Satan there trying to accuse. Indeed, Zechariah is there in this vision, and he even speaks into the, the vision uh, at this point, which is interesting. But here we are in this heavenly courtroom with these angels surrounding and God on the throne, as it were, and Satan has been silenced. And now the the predicament of the priest's dirty clothes is going to be solved. And it's solved with this beautiful word, this beautiful promise. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. What a beautiful promise. What a wonderful act on the part of God to step in and to remove the problem of sin and guilt that Joshua faced. Please note that Joshua did not purchase new clothes. Please note that Joshua did not perform acts of penance or make lots of promises to God about how things were going to be different. I'm going to do better, I promise, or in any other way, clean up his act before God redeemed him and put him to work. God initiates while Satan is in mid-sentence about to point out Joshua's dirty clothes. God is already at work removing them in order to replace them with new pure robes. And so it is with the gospel. So it is with you and me. God draws near to us in grace forgiving us, cleansing us of our sin, renewing us before he commissions us to serve and obey him. Sometimes we get that backwards. Sometimes we think, if I obey God's word, if I live a good Christian life, then God will love me, God will forgive me, God will approve of me. But we have it absolutely backwards. God draws near to us in grace and in cleansing and in restoration and then 
he appoints us for service. Then he gives us commands to obey and a life to live in his service. You know, maybe you're wandering from God right now. Maybe you're afraid that you've blown it so badly with God that he won't take you back and that he can't use you anymore. And if that's you, hear the word of grace in Yahweh's provision of new clothes for Joshua. You don't need to clean yourself up. You need to come to him in faith and he himself will cleanse you. That is the invitation in the gospel. And that is what we see at work in this image with Joshua the priest. If you've never come to faith, to come near to God in faith, if you would say that you're not a Christian or you're not sure if you're a Christian, we want you to know today that God has made every necessary provision for the forgiveness of your sins and a new relationship with him through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Believe on him, call upon him, and you can exchange your filthy, sin-stained garments for a robe of his righteousness. This is the grace of God toward sinners. And notice after this cleansing, he, he removes the dirty garments, he puts on new garments, he says, I've taken your iniquity away from you, and now he charges him with the work of, of overseeing his temple, right? He says, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, right? So there's, now, there is a responsibility on Joshua's part as the priest now to, to follow the law, right? To, to, to do what God says to do and to, to lead and to serve and to worship in the prescribed ways that God has given to his people. And if you will do these things, uh, you will rule my house and have charge of my courts. What does that mean? It means you will, you will be a governor, as it will, over the temple. So the, the, the high priest here is, is given the charge of God's house, the temple, the worship of God's people, uh, representing the people in God's presence. And he says, specifically, I want you to notice this. He says, I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. I think, again, among the angels in heaven. So you have access to me. You can come into my presence. As the high priest, Joshua would have the unique role of entering God's presence in the temple on the Day of Atonement. But we call it what, what's called Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement. It's one day a year. And the high priest enters the, the temple, the holy place in the temple, uh, to make sacrifices for sin and, uh, and to represent the people before God, right? And so there's a very specific way that this will be fulfilled in the life of Joshua because he is going to serve Israel as the high priest. And so he will have this right of access, of, of coming into uh, God's presence. And there's a fuller way that this is seen and, and applies to us in the gospel, because in Christ, we have been given access to God. We no longer need a human priest to come and go in God's presence on our behalf. That's not what a pastor does, by the way. I'm not leading you into God's presence or something. You don't need me to be in God's presence. You go directly to him. There's no need for a human priest to be your mediator. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It is Jesus himself who serves as our mediator, the one who, who represents us before God and indeed allows us access 
to him. We are in, we come into his presence because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. Friends, in Christ, you have been made clean. You have been clothed with garments of righteousness. And you're invited to draw near to God as his beloved child. Avail yourself of this rich privilege. Go confidently before his throne, as Hebrews 4.16 says, that you may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. So the good news of this image, the, the, the answer to the predicament of a priest with filthy robes is that new robes are provided. The good news for sinners is that righteousness has been purchased and applied through faith in Christ. You can draw near to him. You have what you need to be in relationship with him and to serve him because of Christ's righteousness in your place. And he stands as your mediator. That is God's provision in our predicament. And then it ends with a promise. God's made the provision of these new robes and charged him with with work in the temple. And in verses 8 through 10, he makes a promise that points far beyond what Joshua himself will experience in his day through his service in the temple. Look at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. He mentions men who are uh, who sit before you. He says, your friends who sit before you, they are men who are a sign. And it seems that these other men are fellow uh, priests who would serve with Joshua in the temple. And so he's sort of telling Joshua after giving him this charge over the the house of God, right? In the new restored, rebuilt temple, when God's presence is returned to the temple, you will oversee life and worship and service in the temple. And these other men who are priests alongside you, Joshua is the high priest and these other priests serve uh, uh, serving roles. These priests who are doing this work are themselves a sign that is a a foreshadowing of a greater priest who will come. As you serve, as you lead in the temple, and as these men serve alongside you in the priestly worship of God and representing the people before God, they serve as a sign of a greater priest who will come. Who is that priest? He says... I will send my servant the branch or shoot. This is language from Isaiah chapter 11. And other, there are other prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, used this language as well of, this, of a servant that God would send. But it's perhaps most poignantly stated in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, where the prophecy is given, A shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse. And the, the language there of a stump of Jesse. Jesse, of course, was David's father. David was the great king. David was the one who God had promised someone will sit on the throne from your family forever. 
But then it's as though that tree got cut off. And so the prophets envisioned the exile of the people of Israel and Judah as, as the tree of the sort of Davidic covenant being lopped off. And so now it's just a stump because they've been judged, they've been disobedient, now they've been exiled to, to Babylon and to Egypt and these other places. And now this, this prophecy in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and elsewhere is that there's going to be a new branch, a new shoot, new life coming forth from the lopped off stump of the Davidic covenant, the Davidic family. Yahweh's promise to send his servant, the branch or the shoot, is the promise of a messianic priest, one from the house of David who would atone for the sins of his people. And in fact, he says about that atonement, I will, in verse 9, I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. Now, immediately, in the most immediate context, that single day in view is probably the the annual day of atonement, where the high priest uh, entered the, the holy place and made sacrifices for the sins of the people. But in a fuller sense, and in a farther looking way, it also pointed forward to the coming of this Messiah and the work that he would accomplish on a single day to pay for his people's sins. And this would be accomplished when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sent into the world as a man, suffered on the cross as a once for all sacrifice for our sins, thus removing our sin and reconciling us to God. So make no mistake, the promise of this branch, of this shoot to come, is the promise of a priest who would serve in the line of David forever and once for all remove the iniquity, the sin and guilt of his people. And that clearly points us forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And friends, we have that fulfilled promise because Jesus has come and Jesus has taken our iniquity and he has atoned for our sins. There's a detail here that might strike you as, as strange where he mentions in verse nine, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription. I believe that that stone with seven eyes is a reference to the Holy Spirit. If you remember our time in Revelation, there were several places in that book where where the Spirit was spoken of as, first of all, as seven spirits. The greeting in in Revelation 1-3 is, from the three persons of the Trinity, from the Father and from uh, the Son and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That is a a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. And then elsewhere uh, in chapter, I believe it's chapter 5, I think it's chapter 5, verse 6 in Revelation, um, uh, the Spirit is is seen as seven eyes on the, the horns of the Lamb. So the Lamb, who represents Christ, appears and he has these horns. And the horns have seven eyes, which it said are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. And so in this apocalyptic uh, imagery, which I think the Revelation images are drawing from Zechariah right here, the uh, the eyes, the seven eyes are depicting in a symbolic way uh, the spirit of God whose eyes are uh, upon the earth, right? Who, who are looking out across the earth, who knows uh, what's going on, who knows where his people are. 
And it's as though he's saying that all of this work, this priestly work that Joshua is to do, and the greater priestly work that, that the Messiah would fulfill are to be done in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And I, I want to just bookmark that because when we get to the image, uh, to image number five next week in chapter four, you'll see the Holy Spirit play a really important role again. And, and, and the seven eyes referenced one more time in clear, uh, clearly depicting the Spirit of God. So I just want that to, to be a bookmark for you. So the predicament, robes are filthy, we're unprepared for the relationship that we're to have with God, for the work that he's given us. The provision, he's given us new robes. He's cleansed our iniquity. He's removed our sin and our guilt and given us robes of righteousness whereby we can be in fellowship with him. The holy God can dwell with unholy people because he's cleansed them himself through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus in our place. And then the promise, there's one who will come, right? The promise in that day had not yet been fulfilled in the coming of Christ. For us, where we stand, it's been fulfilled in the first instance because Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose and he ascended and he's at the right hand of God. And it will be fulfilled yet again in a final way in the age to come. This coming Messiah, the forever priest whom Joshua symbolically represents, will bring even greater blessing to his people in the future kingdom that he's inaugurated, but not yet consummated. There we are in that tension between what's already begun, but not yet been fully realized, that we will come to know and experience in the new creation. Look at verse 10. He says, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. In the gospel, we have been summoned to an eternal feast. And we've been entrusted with the stewarding of this message, of spreading this invitation. Come to the feast. Let us faithfully, diligently carry out that task as his people on earth, as we live in this in-between. There's a feast that's been purchased to which we've been invited that's coming. Let's invite as many as we have opportunity to join us there. Come to Christ. Come to God in faith for cleansing, for new robes. And he himself will clothe you with righteousness that you may participate in this feast in the fellowship under the vine and fig tree where we invite our neighbors and our friends to celebrate together. And one day in the new creation, we will feast and celebrate with our neighbors, young and old, black and white, male and female, and we'll raise a toast to the great high priest who gave us robes of righteousness and carried us into his eternal kingdom. Let's pray together.